Father, I first want to give you thanks for the men and women who did found this country, who are used by you, for we know that you set up the rulers and the kingdoms of the earth, and you put up one and you take down another according to your will. And you have established us here for a purpose. And we know one of the main purposes is that the gospel might go out. For you have used your servants here, and we ask that you would use us well to continue to bring the gospel to the far reaches of the earth, whether it be with Lewis and Clark and going to the Indian tribes, which I don't believe they did, Lord, but uh, if it's our, our, your will that we go to other countries and we do those things, just make it happen according to your will. And this morning, may your word enlighten us. May it motivate us to do what your word has called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So by review, after First Thessalonians, going to Second Thessalonians, the city of Thessalonica was located in the northern part of Greece, the country of Greece that we know of right now. And they had this seaport in the Aegean Sea that was up there. There's about 200,000 people that lived in that area. Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17 and 18, they went up to this area and Paul was there for only three weeks. Well, he taught in the synagogues for three weeks and during the week he would work not to be a burden to anyone in the church or in the church that was being established there and we know that as he spoke in the synagogues there were some jews who accepted the gospel then there were not just a few of the god-fearing greeks and also some prominent women from the city now after paul had been in the synagogues for three weeks there are some jews that didn't like him and so they just riled up the city to go against paul and because of uh, they were fearing even for their lives or getting beaten up they left the city at night and they headed towards berea i think it's about 30 miles away And when they went to Berea, well, some of the Jews from Thessalonica followed them over there and they riled up the city again. And so Paul had to leave and Paul went over to Athens. And you remember the Areopagus over at Athens and Paul did his evangelistic uh, message over there. But he was so concerned about the Thessalonians that he sent Timothy back. And when Timothy went back, he was talking with the people there he found out that their faith was just growing the persecution that they were undergoing they were enduring and there was word being spread about them and their faith throughout all the region and that was the purpose for which paul wrote first thessalonians to encourage them in their faith they were doing so well just keep on going and he reminded them about the second coming of christ that jesus is coming back and this is what to expect and in chapter one chapter two and chapter five he talks about how we are not appointed to wrath but those who have ditched the gospel of jesus christ they are going to suffer wrath and so that's kind of the background of what is going on in the church at Thessalonica. <clears throat> now, the reason he wrote the second letter to Thessalonica after a few months was because there were these guys who were getting into the church, these false teachers who were there because the persecution was becoming so great, so onerous on the people inside the church that these false teachers came in, they said, oh, there's a word of prophecy or there's a message or there is a letter actually written by Paul and this is by the authority of Paul that you are all now in the tribulation. And they became concerned. They're going, what do you mean we're in the tribulation? Because some people had died and they were worried about those people who had uh, gone on to the next life, so to speak, without them and maybe they missed the rapture of the church. And Paul goes on to explain 
that they have not missed it and these this letter that is being circulated or these people who are prophesying they are all wrong that is not where the church is at and he goes on to explain that as these people are enduring their suffering god will judge them worthy to be able to enter into the kingdom and so that's why he wrote the book or the letter of second thessalonians and he also addresses the issue of who the antichrist is or that there is this antichrist and he spends some time developing that. So we're still kind of on the main theme from First Thessalonians, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ, into the next book of the Thessalonians, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ and the Antichrist who is coming onto the scene. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank you or for you, brothers. Excuse me. Let me try that again. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. And so when he says more and more and it's increasing... These are superlatives in what would be in the English language. They mean exceedingly or superabounding. He couldn't use greater language to describe how he thought their faith was and how their love increased with one another. He was just like overjoyed. And that's how he's expressing it in the original language. Then verse 4, it says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So he recognizes the trials they're going through. He he seems to want to answer this problem that they're thinking, this is the tribulation. It's so bad. This is the tribulation. Now, the evidence that the church in Thessalonica was growing in their faith, according to the scripture here, is their love for one another. It was increasing. They weren't growing cold towards one another. Their perseverance was present in the midst of the trial. They just kept on enduring, kept on going forward. They were not retreating at all. And their trust in God was manifest during the times of testing. They still said, glory to God, we're going through this, and we know it. he has a purpose in it. And imagine all of this information or the way that they understood this after Paul was only there for three weeks. Could you imagine going to a community and saying, hey, how you doing? Met a few people, went to some other church or some place and, and just started giving the gospel. Maybe it was a church that didn't give the gospel. And all of a sudden a bunch of people get saved and, and they know all of this stuff after three weeks. Now, how much did Paul have to teach as well as work to get all of this information communicated? Well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And after Timothy came back and he checked on them, he was able to encourage them much more and give them more wisdom and insight. And and so that church was established there in Thessalonica. The the town today is called Salonica. Uh, It was changed over the centuries, but it's still a thriving city. I think I mentioned maybe 300,000 people live there today. But going on in verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will count, be counted worthy of the kingdom of God of which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So he has this coin. On one side of the coin, God is just in saying that you are worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven because how you endured and you have suffered and you have still trusted in God and your love is growing. You're still 
progressing in your Christian faith. You are worthy to enter the kingdom. And on the other hand, the flip side of the coin, those who are causing you trouble, everlasting destruction is their lot. That's what's going to be dished out to them. So God is making this judgment. Now, the word judgment, it means condemnation or selection or separation. So he's going to take the believers, separate them for the kingdom, and those who are causing trouble, everlasting destruction. So the wicked will be judged and paid back for all the wrong that they had done, and the righteous will receive relief from their suffering and declares them to be worthy to enter the kingdom. Now that relief, when we suffer, sometimes that relief doesn't come until you know when, until we're six feet under. Uh, Somebody once came up to me and, and they asked me, well, how are you doing today? I said, good. And they said, well, every day that's above ground is a good day, isn't it? I said, yeah, every day above ground is a good day. And one day, if the Lord should uh, hold back his rapture, well, we'll be there all joining with the others that have gone previous to us. So God is making a judgment about everyone who has previously lived. Now, when the wicked are judged, it is because they are unrighteous and there are no works that speak of their righteousness at all. They haven't done anything good. And by the way, if we don't have Christ, we can't do anything good. We can only do good works according to the ability that God gives us by the efforts of the Holy Spirit working in us. And when the righteous suffer for no fault of their own and bear up under it, God declares or has judged them to be righteous. So whenever we are persecuted, and by the way, I need to give parameters to this persecution. If we do something stupid and we suffer for it, that is not... That is not something that God's going to look at and say, oh, you poor thing, you're being persecuted. No, you're just being stupid. And, and we don't want to be stupid like that. We want to make sure that if we're suffering, we're suffering for the cause of Christ. That we've opened up our mouth and we witness to somebody and then we're shunned by them. And we say, well, you know, the Lord said this is going to happen. Or the government, if it comes along and says you can no longer practice your faith. Well, that's part of being a believer. We know that that persecution is going to come. The wicked are going to be condemned. The righteous are going to be counted worthy of the kingdom and God is the one who is working this in us he has appointed times for different believers throughout the world in different times to suffer some greatly some not so greatly I think I mentioned last week that I was going through the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn as well and the torture techniques that they use I, I really can't repeat what they were doing it's so horrific it is beyond belief. And some of those same types of things are happening now with Ukraine and Russia. They're launching bombs that have white phosphorus in it. And white phosphorus, it doesn't stop burning. And if it hits you, that's it. It's just going to keep burning right through. And, and the, some of the tortures, the rape and the pillage and the thievery that's going on, it's just horrible. And this has been the case throughout history. You want to call... Uh, human beings mankind or humankind but there's no kindness in it at all hundreds of millions of people have been imprisoned and tortured I think I remember telling you about Tulslang the prison that was over in Cambodia Uh, just the ruthlessness of the people and that type of persecution it can come around again for those in the United States I don't know that it will ever be that severe But it certainly is taking place even now in countries around the world. And God let us know in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that 
Being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so those people who are enduring like that, and I've received, I think I told you some more emails from Myanmar, they are suffering greatly. People are being just slaughtered over there and slaughtered because of their faith in Christ. And we will suffer as Christians to one degree or another. We share in the suffering of Jesus that we might also share in his glory. We're told this in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, remember, Nero was a persecutor of the church, and the guy was just a crazy man, just out of his mind. You probably remember some of the history stories of him, how he would dip Christians in pitch, put them on poles, light them on fire, and this is in his garden, and then run through his garden on his horse and chariot with no clothes on and screaming at the top of his lungs like a banshee. The, the man was absolutely crazy, and he did this to the Christians, and he burned down part of Rome or most of Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. And it was so unfair, and that man certainly will be judged according to the word. And we are encouraged in the midst, or we are to be encouraged in the midst of suffering to remember that Jesus overcame the suffering of this world, John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken unto you, that in you, me, you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And, and so this type of tribulation, when, when we see people coming at the church, now it really hasn't happened too much. We had a little bit of that during COVID, you know, where they wanted to shut down the church and everything that's going on in the church. That, that's light and momentary. And this, it's not even to be compared with the biblical type of suffering here. Now, Paul also tells us in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And so it can be difficult. But we are so blessed. We really have experienced none of what they're talking about here in the scriptures. And when Jesus returns and determines that the Thessalonians are worthy to enter the kingdom, he does so because they persevered through the persecution they experienced and they grew in their faith. And on the flip side, as I told you, those who reject the gospel, they're worthy of everlasting destruction. In verse 6, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble for those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, when we are persecuted, when we are taken advantage of, when people steal from us, we want to take revenge. <clears throat> I just saw this little news blurb, and they had the cameras on the police chest. And this woman, she walks up to a police officer. She has, maybe you have this on Google Maps. You can tell, like I knew where Patty was all last week. If she was going to Cabo, and she wasn't really in Cabo, if she was heading off to Italy, I would have known it. It would have been on there. And you can track like that. I learned that from Daryl. Daryl was watching Kim once coming across the country. And, and Daryl goes, yeah, see, there she is right there. And she was just moving along. Well, this woman, she walks up to this police officer. And she's, he says, or she says, they've taken my child. And here's where he is. And the police officer immediately, he, he got in his cruiser and started taking off. And they were going around a few blocks and he was on the radio saying, we need to go over here. And he's following where this guy is going. And this guy was caught. And he acts all surprised like, what did I do? You know, and, and they 
brought out the guns and they're pointing through the window. Open the door right now and get out. And he's going, well, like, what did I do? And in the back is the child. And they had taken the child. And, and when stuff like that happens, you just go, man, that, that guy, if he continues and doesn't repent, is going to have a bout with everlasting judgment, everlasting trial, everlasting condemnation. He's going to have that forever. And the wickedness is just so profuse. And, and my first thought with this guy was, I know what I'd like to do to you, you know, for doing it in my flesh. It just bubbles up on the inside. And sometimes I have to crucify it all over again and put it down. But, <clears throat> you know, you, your first reaction sometimes, I want to hurt that guy. That guy has taken advantage of a little child. And why would you do something like this? But the Lord says, no. Revenge is his. It says this in Romans twelve nineteen. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's just the opposite of what uh, Hollywood is portraying right now. You have these Avengers going out. I think one, uh, I never saw it, but the name of one film was uh, The Punisher. I, he was, and I heard the theme was he's going to go out and punish these people who have done evil and it's always the good over the evil and hurting the evil and giving them their just due. Well, to a certain degree, I guess that's acceptable if the government is doing it. But for us, we are not to go out and commit acts of revenge. The Lord says, I, I'm going to deal with this guy and it'll be righteously and not in an unrighteous fashion. So this particular judgment this everlasting condemnation, this everlasting wrath, when will this happen? When will this be brought to fruition? In verse 7 it says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So he gives us a time when this is going to take place. Now, this is understood disclosing the truth and insinuates a removing of a veil. It insinuates a a time where it's going to be open to everybody to see that God is going to bring justice and judgment. Now, this is specifically referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the rapture of the church. Because when he comes back, it is going to be so spectacular that nobody is going to be able to, to miss it. Now, I'd like you to turn over to the book of Revelation if you're using your Bible, or if you're on your electronic device, just go over to Revelation chapter 1. And in chapter 1, it talks about those who will see him. You guys know who will see him when he comes back the second time, right? It's everyone, every eye. He didn't say every person, he said every eye. And those, if they don't have eyes, they're still going to know he's coming back says in verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So when he comes back, everybody sees it and goes, Oh, no, this is not going to be good. And as we go on, I, I want to give a little bit more of a description of this. Turn over to chapter 19. And in verse 11, we're going to read through to verse... 21 here this is the return of jesus christ in the second coming now in revelation chapter 1 verse 7 it says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him when he comes back for the rapture he is going to be in the clouds and he's going to receive us to be with himself 
In verse 11 of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, this individual on the right horse is not to be confused with the individual on the white horse in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, dealing with the breaking of the first seal. That is the Antichrist, and he likes to be a mimicker, a copycat, and that's why he's on a white horse. Verse 12 says, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And I had always in my mind before I read this that Jesus is all dressed in white. His robe is going to be crimson red when he comes, and fire like coming out of his eyes. Now, it's a metaphorical language. It's like this light is just coming out of him his fingers, his eyes, his, his toes, everywhere. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, that is us, which I will get to uh, later. We'll refer back to it. Verse 15 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, this is simply his word, because we know the Word of God is as a sword. It divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit. He spoke the word and everything was created. And so that's how he's going to strike down the nature. He's, he, I don't know what he's going to say. It's going to be probably in Hebrew, who knows, or maybe a new language. But it's going to be like, done, dead, out, whatever it's going to be. He just needs to simply speak one word. He will rule them with an iron scepter. <clears throat> you know, Jesus, meek and mild. It's not going to be the case. When he comes back to rule, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all peoples, free and slaves, small and great. So when he comes back, he says you're done you're dead then this angel says all right birds go at it and they devour all the flesh of all the people that god judges there and these are not those who believe these are all the unbelievers all the people of the world all those who don't want jesus christ ruling he kills them all right there and the birds eat their flesh And he goes on to say, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So how radical is this going to be? It's going to be so spectacular, and we're with Jesus Christ. When the heavens open up, he comes down to earth on his horse. We are behind him. And we're coming down with him. And whether he circles the earth or not, I have a tendency to think that he will. Because that's how every eye will see him. If something goes through the atmosphere or just above the atmosphere all the way around, you can see that thing going around. And that thing is going to be Christ. And then he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And his enemies are going to be destroyed. He's going to say it with the word of his mouth. And then, again, the birds are going to consume them, at least the flesh. Now, <clears throat> going on with this, these 
people who have fine linen, bright and clean, who are the army of God, go back a few verses to Revelation chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And it tells us who these people are. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and a loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's that? That's the church. And then it says, Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. We are the armies in chapter 19 that come with the Lord and we have been given these white robes and the white robes are the righteous acts of the saints which God has worked in us during our lifetime. So who specifically will be punished? It says he will punish in verse 8 back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So this is very specific. Those who get punished... They don't know God. They don't obey the gospel that Paul has given. And they're going to be cast into utter destruction. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and you should probably turn there. I saw a commentary on this last week. And the guy, you know, you can go to YouTube and you can see these little shorts. I don't know if you've done that, but sometimes I like doing that. And you just see, like, it's a one-minute clip or 30-second clip, and you can go from one to another. And if you're not careful, it can consume all your time. And the next thing you know, three hours has gone by, and you're going through these little 30-second videos. Well, I, I was spending some time, some downtime. I was just going through a few of them. And I came across this one, and this guy was talking about the scariest verse in the Bible, or these scariest verses. And he read these. Not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now you could see why this would be scary. Because at least what this guy thought would be scary. Because there are those seemingly who would be in the church that would be doing all kinds of works that never knew Jesus Christ. And in context, what's being delivered here, if you go back up to verse 15, we know that he's talking about false prophets. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do not people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs or from thistles, or do they? Uh, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he goes on, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have a context there. There are people who are coming that are false teachers, just like these false teachers who are in Thessalonica saying, you are in the tribulation, the great tribulation, the false teacher. And he says, those people who were doing that They are not saved, and they're not going to heaven. And they may think that they are, but they're not. And I've heard several preachers get on there, you might think you're a Christian, but you're probably not. And you're probably, and they just fire and brimstone, and they're pounding the pulpit, and and you just go, I didn't know I was so bad. 
I, I didn't know that I thought I was a believer and now I'm not a believer. Maybe you've seen some of those preachers which are out there. Well, what about that? What about those who claim to follow God, but they aren't Christians? They, they are false. Is it the works? Now, these guys are appealing to the works. They're saying, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Didn't I serve in Sunday school and make coffee and clean the church and give the messages and work the soundboard and sweep the sanctuary, cut the grass, you know, whatever you want to do, you can say, didn't I not do that for you, Lord? Didn't I not go singing Christmas carols and witness of you and pass out tracts? Didn't I do all of that? None of those things get us into heaven. Not one. The false teachers... Whatever they proclaim to be able to do for Christ, that's not what gets a person into heaven. And if you judge it like that, you have to start saying, okay, first, let's set the context again. If somebody is in the church and they have been told, even though you've been here for years, you're probably not saved. Why? Because you don't have what? The works. You don't have the works. You don't continue in them. You're not persevering in them, that type of thing. Hey, you know, I've sat and for a long time, I've sat and thought about that. And I go through this reasoning in my head. I say to myself, okay, if I am a believer, will I stop sinning? The answer is no. You won't stop sinning. Well, to what degree of sin disqualifies me what if I tell maybe you remember this phrase a little white lie it's not white at all at all it's as black as can be but it's a little white lie I was there but I really wasn't there but I gotta say I was there that's a white lie all the way to murder and mayhem we'll call that like the worst so you go on that spectrum so how far do you have to go before you're disqualified. Oh, you're out. You didn't make it all the way to the end because of that particular sin. Is, and then you ask yourself the question, or I've asked myself this question, is there any sin that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Now, when you look in Romans, it really doesn't talk about sins. It talks about neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers. And it goes on this whole list of things that will never separate you from the love of God. Well, if you're a Christian and you commit a sin, and we know we have an advocate with the Father, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9, we know that. We also know that there are Christians who can be caught in a sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says those who are spiritual are supposed to restore that individual. So there can be an individual who's caught in a, a track of sin, and he's still a believer. You look at 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians, the church was full of sinners, just left and right, and some of them were dying as a result of their sin. But when you get to chapter 15, it says... We all will be changed. What, all the sinners in the church at Corinth, all those reprobates, all those misusers of the gifts, all those disobedient, all those taking people to court and suing them, and all those people getting divorced. I mean, all these things were happening inside the church at Corinth. So how many sins did they have to commit to be disqualified from going to heaven? You don't get into heaven by your works. Neither does it disqualify you from getting into heaven by your works. You see how this works? 
so far. And so what Paul is trying to say here, and what Matthew, you know, Jesus is talking in Matthew about this, and, and it seems like there's going to be people who are not going to make it into heaven, even though they may have been in church the whole time. Remember, in the case here, it was false teachers in the, uh, uh, the Jews' religion, the religion of following Judaism. <clears throat> they were the false teachers. But the same thing would apply to us as well. The one thing that will keep you out of heaven is rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is it. So what if, uh, let me ask you this question. As you get older, do you have fewer sins or more? (laughs) We all know the answer to that one, huh? The longer you live, the more you sin. And the more days you have, the more opportunities to sin. And so the older you are, you know, compared to some little kid that just lied to mommy, his sins are way down here and ours are the height of the Empire State Building, those of us who are older. And does God look at that and say, oh, nope, yours are as high as the Empire State Building, you're not going to make it. No, he has already decided to justify us. Justify means to be declared right. We are right in the eyes of God And nothing can remove that. Nothing can take that away. But we still, in our flesh, will feel guilty. Because I have sinned. And yeah, you should feel guilty if you sin. But once you sin, you go, Jesus, forgive me. And what does he say? Ah, you're forgiven. That's great. Remember the tax collector in the King James, the publican? Not republican. But the publican, he beat his chest and he said, Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee stood up and said how he tithed and he did all this stuff. And the publican went away justified in the eyes of God. He didn't try to justify himself, but the Pharisee tried to justify himself. So if you find yourself beset with sins and you have confessed Christ, that's all it takes. And he says, you're forgiven. And by the way, since our bodies are so corrupted that all we want to do is sin, he goes, I'm going to get rid of that one. And I'm going to give you a new one. And you're not going to have that same propensity to sin. You're going to do what is right all the time. I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Wanting to do right all the time. I I know that Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. You cannot save it. You cannot improve it. Even in the book of Galatians, having now been made perfect or uh, uh, righteous in the spirit or perfected in the spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? You cannot perfect the flesh. I go to the gym and you stop going to the gym. What happens? It decays. It goes away. You try to do right. You treat your body harshly in order to do that which right. Have you ever dieted and treated your body harshly where you didn't want to eat something for a long period of time and then you start eating? What happens? You just revert back to where you were in the first place. You can't correct what is broken. This thing is done and God says, I got to give you a new one. Until then, just keep on persevering. If you fall seven times, how many times does a righteous person get back up? Seven times, that's right. What does he mean? Only seven? No, he is portending to something much greater. If you sin a thousand times, a thousand times you're going to get back up and you're going to head on the road because you have been justified, because you have been set apart, because you have been sanctified. 
And so this idea of those in the Christian church in Thessalonica who keep on persevering, that is just evidence of their faith. It is not something that gives them merit in the eyes of God. And those who have caused trouble, well, that is going to work against them. Why? Because they have not accepted the gospel. The work of the gospel is what they rejected. And that's what Paul has said will Uh, exclude them from heaven again verse 8 he will punish those who do not know god and who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus christ hopefully that brings a little comfort you know it's like it's not contingent upon what i do my salvation is contingent on who i believe so in the end who will be punished now it's really everyone who does not know god as i just read in revelation chapter 19 verse 18 so that you may eat the flesh of kings, referring to the birds, generals and mighty men of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. They will all be judged on this. And also the beast and the false prophet, Revelation 19, 20 and 21, tells us that they will be cast into the pit. And once that happens, when will all these things come to fruition well we know it's at the second coming of christ now at the second coming of christ that's what inaugurates the thousand year literal millennial reign of christ and i know there's many who don't believe that there are some who believe we are in the millennium even right now i don't think we're in the millennium right now during the millennium the the laws of entropy or heat loss or decay will be subsided they will be put away not totally but we know that they will be set aside for the period of the thousand years and you've heard me talk about that before where we will simply witness people who will live hundreds and hundreds of years just like they did in the beginning and then when jesus comes back we're given further information how this will take place as far as these people being judged and those who reject the gospel in matthew chapter 13 verse 36 it says then he left the crowd and went into the house his disciples came to him and it's and said explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field he answered the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man the field is the word and this good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them in the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear. And so the illustration, the parable that's being worked off of here is a field of wheat has been sown, and he comes along and sows probably darnel into that wheat, and the two are growing together. And the harvesters come in and say, should we pull out the darnel with the wheat? And he said, no, let the two grow together until the end. And then the angels come first, and they take those who are to be judged 
and those are cast in the lake of fire and then those who remain which I believe this is the end of the tribulation period those are gathered into barns those are the people who will repopulate the earth at the end and of course we know about the great white throne judgment after the thousand year reign of Christ Jesus sets up his throne the earth is melted away it's all gone everything that we have well what are we going to stand on where are we going to be you know and it's kind of difficult to envision everything that's going to happen with this but the books are open many books are open and at that time, if the person's name was not found written in the book of life, they're cast into the fiery pit, uh, the hell, the <clears throat> for everlasting. You know, we know uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and Daniel 12, 2 say it's forever. It does not end. And there was a guy on the East Coast, I think his name was uh, Rob Bell. Uh, he started teaching that uh, hell isn't forever. And it is forever. It is pernicious lie to say that it is not forever we are created in the image of God which means we will exist forever so this judgment that's coming and I think most of you know this already but it, it's spelled out in scripture it says in verse 9 of First Thessalon- or Second Thessalonians chapter 1 they will be punished with everlasting destruction or punishment and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power <clears throat> now how do you how do you do that God is responsible for everything in this universe. Wherever you go, God is. There isn't anywhere you can go to get away from God. But God creates this place where his presence is not there. I don't know how you do that. And that means there's no love. There's no glory. There's no fellowship. There's no camaraderie. There's no interaction. Everything that is God is not going to be there. And we know that it is forever. The verses I already gave you, Matthew twenty-five forty-six. It is also a place of burning heat, not associated with light. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's called the lake of burning sulfur. It is a place of suffering. In Jude chapter 7, it says, they serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. And also in Mark chapter 9, verse 47, it says, Their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. We know that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Also in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, he expresses that same phrase. And it is a place of darkness. In Jude chapter, uh, verse 13, and since there's only one chapter there, it's just Jude 13, it says, For they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So it's dark, it's torment, it's forever, there is weeping, there is regret, and the presence of God is not there. What a horrible place to be. And it's not just for a little while. I, I don't know about you, but when you were a, a child, did you try to go somewhere that was just completely dark inside your house? When I grew up, the way the house I grew up in was situated, you had the front room, then you had the hallway, then you had bedrooms off the hallway, and we could shut. You guys know what a pocket door is? You know, we could, we could pull this pocket door shut, and we could shut all the other doors, and there were no, you know what a solar tube is? There's no solar tubes going into that, and it would be just as dark as dark could be in that little hallway there. And we'd go and look how dark it is. You know, we'd play in there. We'd get things glow in the dark in there. It was just a lot of fun. It doesn't even compare to that, how 
dark it is going to be. A darkness like in the plagues of Egypt that can be felt. Now, I don't know how dark that is, but I don't even want to experience that type of darkness. And that's what awaits those who reject the gospel. Now, closing this out in chapter 1 here. It says, On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. You see where belief is the operative thing here? With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we have to look forward to. God justifies us. When we persevere, he goes, oh, you're already mine. That's why you're persevering. He's the one that works in us. And Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he will be faithful to bring our salvation to the end. It is not contingent upon your works, and that is not the reason you get to heaven. Or the lack of works, the sins of omission, that is not what gets you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in the Son that has brought salvation to all of us. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for Paul, how he clears this up for the people in Thessalonica, that how they are persevering there to be uh, uh, cognizant of this idea that you are going to reward them for their faithfulness and how their faith grows in the midst of this persecution. And Father, I, I would not pray to stave off the persecution for in some degree it comes to all of us but i would pray that you would help us to endure like the church the people in thessalonica and one day when we meet them lord they will be able to give us a testimony of what they endured may all this be for your glory in jesus name and the church said please stand